Please take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter, four, <coughs> Acts chapter 14 with me. Acts chapter 14, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 18, and that's in your pew Bible on page 1716. Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 18. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and the Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and they fled Lyconium, cities to the cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. In Lystra, there was a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bowls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your earth with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Children, you are dismissed for Children's Church at this time. And leave your Bibles open because we're going to go right in to this text as the children leave. When we come to this text, we see that evangelizing people who don't share our worldview is a challenge. Many of you know that when I was in college, I went to a secular university, a state college, Marshall University in Huntington, West Virginia. And I was involved in Campus Crusade for Christ. And something that, that I treasured was the opportunity to evangelize. And Marshall University, it was a work of God because the change, the transformation that took place in that college, secular as it was, by the gospel was amazing. 
we literally had hundreds and hundreds of conversions. People who heard the gospel and responded. And what was amazing was just the, the, the openness of that college. But I noticed something. Now, I hate to admit this, but this was 40 years ago when I was doing this. I did the math this morning and I was depressed. <laughs> but 40 years ago that this took place. And you know something? I know that we were in the Bible Belt, but there were some basic worldviews that people shared in that time. In them days, no, <laughs> it's kind of the way I feel, but, but, but there, was, there, there has been a, a huge transformation. And that's in the way people think. When we would share the gospel, pe people in general basically believed that the Bible was the word of God, that there is a God, and that Jesus literally died and rose again. That was a general thought process that most, I'm not saying all, but most of the people that we would share the gospel with subscribe to. I can guarantee you that if I went back to Marshall University today, that would be by far the minority view rather than the majority view. There has been a seed change in the way people think. Their worldview has been radically changed. And that's something that we have to understand. As we share the gospel, we're going to face situations like what Paul is described in here in the book of Acts. We're going to find that there are some people that have a general idea that there is a God, but that they don't see much relevance in him. Or we'll find other people who don't believe in God at all. They don't even entertain the thought that there might be a God. So we had better learn from the Apostle Paul how do we share the truth of the gospel to a world that has a worldview so different than ours? And that's what we're going to look at today as we look at this. How do we evangelize those with this different worldview? First of all, we're going to look here at Acts chapter 14. And we're going to start with verses 1 through 7, where we see Paul ministering in Iconium. And what we find is this, that we have to be willing to share the gospel even in the face of opposition. Let me tell you something. If you share the gospel today, you're going to meet opposition. There may be some people that just look at you and say, you know, you, you are so out of it. You don't get it. You're superstitious. Come on, you believe that. I mean, that may be some of the opposition you face. But let me tell you something. When we see people with the worldview that our world has today, it escalates. The opposition begins verbal, but it will continue to escalate as people move further and further into that worldview. And we've seen it, haven't we? We've seen more and more of a hostility toward Christianity because the worldview of our culture has changed radically. And I would say to you, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to continue, and we need to understand that, and we need to be ready for that. So how did Paul go into regions where there were people who did not share his worldview that Jesus died on the cross, that he is the promised one of God, that he forgives sins? How did he come into an area where there was nothing there in the way of a gospel witness? 
And that's what we're going to see as we look at this text. Look at verse 1. What Paul and Barnabas did was they committed to being very intentional in their sharing the gospel. It says, at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the synagogue, and there they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. They had a plan. They had a strategy for going into these regions where there's no gospel witness. They always used a procedure that they had prayed about, that they were led by the Spirit to do, and one that they had honed as a skill. And let me share this with you. If you're going to evangelize today, you have to think of a strategy. If you lay back and just say, when God moves me, I will share. Let me tell you something, you won't share. If I'm just laying there waiting for God to move me, you know, rob the blob, (laughs) waiting for God to animate me, I will never evangelize. You have to be intentional. You have to choose to go. You have to respond to Christ's command to move out of where you are to where they are and share the gospel. And so this is what Paul and Barnabas did. And they went to the Jewish synagogue first because there they would find people who at least believed in God. And it was a starting point. So when they would go into a town or a village, that was their starting point. Sometimes you'll be able to find that starting point. Sometimes you won't. And let me share this. Sometimes that starting point of at least believing in God is even more difficult than a person who doesn't believe in God because they hold on to what they believe and they're not ready to let it go. This is what Paul and Barnabas did. They went in and they shared. And I wonder, do you have a strategy for your workplace? Do you have a strategy for your neighborhood? Have you thought about what it would take to share with your family? The areas that God has sent you to, placed you in, have you prayed or thought about a strategy for sharing the gospel? That's what God wants us to do. Look, the work of evangelism wasn't just for the apostles. It's not just for pastors not just for elders. The work of evangelism is for us all. We are to share the gospel with those around us even when their worldview is radically different than ours. We need to build that strategy. And I believe the beginning place for that strategy is prayer. Remember I told you a little while ago about hundreds of people who found Christ at Marshall University while I was a student there. You know how that started? Two women in the community of Huntington, West Virginia, started praying for Marshall University. Two women. They went and they got some others. And soon there was a group of Christian women praying for the school that numbered about 18 or 20. And they challenged Campus Crusade to come into the campus and try doing the work of evangelism there. You know what happened? God answered prayer. A strategy was built and many came to Christ. That's what we need to do. We need to pray about God using us. 
And we need to go to an area with a strategy in place, thinking about how I can intentionally share the gospel. Because let me tell you, if you don't have the intent to share the gospel, you won't unless somebody comes up to you and says, can you tell me how I can have a relationship with God? That happens occasionally, but it's a rare thing. Notice Paul and Barnabas didn't go into the area and live their lives for a couple of years so that people could see what Christians lived like, right? They went there with the intention of sharing the gospel, and that's exactly what they did. Next, we need to courageously share the gospel in the face of opposition. Right at the end of the first verse, we saw there they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed but anytime there's success, there's opposition. Because verse 2 says this, But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. Now let's go back to that second verse. When we share the gospel, there are going to be those who respond and believe. And isn't that exciting when they do? But let me tell you something. There are going to be those who refuse and resist. And that's what Paul and Barnabas found. In verse 2, there was a group that refused to believe. And notice this refusal to believe. It wasn't because they had an intellectual problem. This is a problem of the will. They chose not to believe. They refused it. But not only did they themselves say, I'm not going to believe this. Look at what they did. They stirred up the Gentiles. Now this is the same word that we found in the 13th chapter. And stirring up kind of has the idea of, did you ever watch those old westerns? I'm, I'm a western nut. And somebody does a crime and they go around to all their friends and say, let's grab the torches and go over to the town square and form a lynch mob, right? We're going to show those people. We're going to just take them and lynch them ourselves, right? And what happens? You know, you hear a lot of murmuring. I, I think all the Westerns use the same murmuring tape, you know? <laughs> Pretty consistent. But it's easy to whip people up, to stir them up, right? And so this is what... The Jewish people were doing that, refused to believe. They were stirring up the Gentiles. They, they were directing them toward Paul and Barnabas. And, and how did they pull it off? Notice the scripture also says they poisoned their minds. They poisoned their minds. You know, when we look at scripture, Satan has a lot invested in poisoning people's minds. This isn't just an intellectual battle. It's a spiritual battle. And it's a battle for the hearts and the minds of people. The Apostle Paul shared this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and following. It says this, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now look at this. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Who's the God of this age? Satan. Very good. So the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You have the dynamic of those who have refused to believe, but you also have the spiritual dynamic of Satan, who is poisoning their minds. 
through his emissaries, these people. They were doing the work of Satan. And that's why they were so successful. So how do you counteract this kind of opposition? Look at verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there. They weren't frightened away. They stood their ground. They continued to share the gospel. And it says they spoke boldly for the Lord. But then God did something in addition for them. Notice it says that as they were speaking boldly for the Lord, the Lord confirmed their message of grace. That was their message. That was their gospel. The grace of God, not the works of men. And as they're speaking this in order to establish this as true, God enabled them to do miraculous signs and wonders. God was doing something to say to these Gentiles, look, what they're saying is true. I'm going to authenticate it. So that should settle all matters, right? Here we have these people who are coming in and they're doing miracles. And you can see right before their eyes that miracles are done. And yet, there were still those who did not believe because look at verse 4. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. You ever heard someone say, man, if I could just see God do something, then I'd believe in it. You ever heard that? I'm, I'm sure you have as you've shared the gospel. You know what the Bible is? It's a case study of those who saw something and still refused to believe. When we look in the Old Testament, miracle after miracle that God did to bring the Jews out of Egypt, and what did they do? They still doubted and disbelieved, right? Jesus, in his ministry, through the Gospels, the Pharisees couldn't say that miracle didn't really happen. They had no answer for what Jesus was doing, and yet, still refused to believe. And here, Paul and Barnabas sharing the gospel of grace, God giving these people something very special, very unique, proof positive that this message is more than just the words of man, and yet, what do we find? Still those who disbelieved. We need to understand that when we share the gospel, we need to share it courageously, but there will always be those, no matter what we say, no matter what we do, that are going to disbelieve. Then we find this. We need to choose to share where people are receptive to the gospel. Now, I want you to notice that verse 3 said, Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there. Okay? It wasn't where they came in and said, hey, have you heard the gospel? Oh, you're not going to believe? See ya. You know? That wasn't what happened, right? They spent considerable time there. They were ministering God's word, right? But look at verse 5. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and the Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them. Now, mistreat them is code for torture, okay? They were going to beat them, right? And then it goes on to say that they were not only going to mistreat them, they planned to stone them. Just as they took the Lord Jesus Christ out by crucifixion, 
Now they're planning on taking Paul and Barnabas out by stoning them to death. And stoning would have been something that Paul really could picture vividly in his mind because we know that he witnessed the stoning of Stephen. But God had more work for Paul and Barnabas to do. So verse 6 tells us they found out about it and they fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. Look, they weren't discouraged. Where the door closed in Iconium, the door opened in Lystra. They didn't look at their bad experiences in Pisidian Antioch or in Iconium and say, maybe I just shouldn't be doing this. There's too much difficulty here. There's too much stress. Maybe I should throw in the towel and just quit this witnessing gig because it's really not paying off, right? They could have done that. But what did they do? They continued to witness. Why? Because the people needed to hear and because they were commissioned by Christ to do that ministry. So that's exactly what they did. They kept sharing the gospel. And they understood full well that it could mean their lives, but they were willing to sacrifice that to serve. Then we come to the next part. We need to communicate the gospel in a way that people will understand. When we come to Lystra, we find a different situation where in Iconium there was a synagogue. In Lystra, apparently there was not. So here are Paul and Barnabas, and they're coming into this town to share the gospel, and they're going to encounter a group of people that had a very confused worldview. And it caused them to misinterpret some things. So let's look at this text. When we come to verse 14, or excuse me, verse 8, it says, In Lystra there was a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. So Luke is sort of setting this up. There is a person here that everybody in the community would have witnessed as having been lame from birth. Isn't it interesting in Scripture when we find the healings that God does? They're undeniable healings. Everybody in a community sees the person as having been blind or having been lame for their life. And then God steps in. It's a miracle that cannot be denied. So here is this man. And notice verse 9. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Now we all know what Paul was speaking about, right? He went there to share the gospel, to evangelize. So he's talking about Jesus Christ, and who knows, perhaps he had just talked about how Christ had healed people. And now they're about to give a visual aid that that indeed took place. Because what we find is this. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed. And he called out, stand up on your feet. Now, when he looked at this guy, he saw that there was a positive feedback. There was an engagement with what he was sharing. And so God, by his grace, chose to extend grace and mercy to this man who needed to be healed, and it happened. As he was responding to the gospel, and I believe at that point he was believing, God intervened. And so the man was healed, and look at what happens. Paul cries out, or calls out, verse 10, Stand up on your feet. 
And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. So imagine this crowd. I mean, we read these stories in the Bible, and sometimes we just say, yeah, the guy was there. He was sitting down. He was healed. He jumped up. But I want you to think of this with fresh eyes and and ears and, and think of what really happened. Here is this man crippled from birth, helpless, hopeless. Paul says a word And he jumps up immediately. Imagine your shock. Miracles in Scripture are sometimes called wonders. And that's why they're called wonders. Because you look at it and your mouth hangs open and you have no explanation. And you're just saying, did what I think just happened happen? You're amazed at what transpires. And I'm sure that the community was amazed because look at what they did in verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Now here is a nightmare. Paul went in to share the gospel. Healing was done to authenticate the gospel. The best of intentions, things that had worked everywhere else, are misinterpreted here. Because of the crowd's worldview. See, the crowd had always been taught that Zeus and the gods would come and visit and do great things for men. On occasion, they would appear as strangers and they would address the crowd and they would do something nice for the people. This was a part of their mythology. This was a part of their thought process. So here, Paul and Barnabas come in With a different worldview, Jesus Christ heals. And we will demonstrate his power and authority by doing this that you might believe. But rather than jumping from where they were to what Paul and Barnabas were saying, they stayed where they were and they interpreted it through their worldview. Oh, Paul must be Hermes. Hermes is the Greek god of communication. And since he's the guy doing most of the talking... He's Hermes. Zeus kind of stands in the back and he's in charge and he tells Hermes where to do. And because Barnabas is kind of standing in the background and being quiet, he must be Zeus. And they believe it so much that what happens? The priest of Zeus brings a bull to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. Not what Paul or Barnabas wanted, right? not in the wheelhouse of what they were hoping would happen, and yet here they are faced with misinterpretation. Why? Because these people had the wrong object of faith. Their faith was directed towards Zeus and the pantheon of Greek theology. And they needed to shift from believing the pantheon of Greek mythology to the one true God, Jesus Christ. Paul and Barnabas had done nothing wrong but they encountered people with a different worldview. And let me tell you something. When you share the gospel, you are definitely going to encounter people with a different worldview. Sometimes the things that we say can be totally misunderstood. We can use lingo for people from different religious groups where they might use the same terms that we use, but they mean radically different things. So we have to boil it down to explaining what our terms mean. 
Sometimes when you're in the faith for a long time, you say stuff that people don't understand. You need to be redeemed and justified. And you say that to somebody and they're going, what? I have no idea what you're talking about. We need to explain these things as we share the gospel. And so that's what we find Paul and Barnabas doing. They gave a charge to the people to honor God and not them. Look at what we find. As we come to the 14th verse, it says, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd. Now, when we look at somebody tearing their clothes, we don't understand the cultural meaning of that, but everyone in the ancient Near East would have understood that. That is like a dramatic demonstration of, oh, no, don't do that. So they wanted to correct their thinking. They did not want them to elevate Paul and Barnabas. They wanted to elevate God. And listen, any ministry or teaching that elevates a man rather than God has problems. There are some people that, had they been in Paul and Barnabas' situation, they would have looked at that and they said, sweet, they think that we're really something. They're cheering us on. Look at the loyalty. We can use that. We'll form a mega synagogue and we'll build it around ourselves and we'll tell everybody to, 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 to just worship us. See, Paul warned about this when he said this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4. Misfiring here. There we go. Speaking of false teachers, it says he has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind. Now look at this. Who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. When Paul and Barnabas went there, it wasn't about them, it was about God. And that's why they reacted the way they did. They reacted by running dramatically into the crowd, tearing their clothes and saying, men, why are you doing this? They wanted it to stop. And so once they went into the crowd and they expressed their dismay at what was going on, they then began to cultivate the ground to plant the seeds of the gospel. Look right there in the middle of that 15th verse. And notice what Paul begins to do. He wants them to understand that, first of all, they're only men, human like you. But more than that, look at what he says. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. What is Paul and Barnabas, what, what are their, their starting points? First point is, it's not the many gods that you worship. There's one true God. Listen, before he could talk about Jesus being God, who came and died on the cross and rose again, he had to establish that there's only one true God. 
That's point one, starting place. As you're cultivating the ground, as you're breaking it up, you have to have that concept fixed firmly in the hearts and the minds of people. You see, there could have been the occasion where these people just decided, hey, great, Jesus, we'll add him to our list. As a matter of fact, that's what we find a little bit later in the book of Acts when Paul goes to the Areopagus in Athens. He's looking at all of these idols as he's in this temple area, and there's one empty platform, and it says, to the unknown God. Just in case they missed one, we have an empty platform because we don't want to offend the gods. That's the way they viewed it. So, starting point, there is a God. One God. And you turn from all of these false gods to the one true God. Now, some people will look at that and say, well, man, that's, that's kind of exclusive, isn't it? Yes, it is. Truth, by its nature, is exclusive. You can't sacrifice the truth for political correctness. Was it politically correct, what Paul said? No. Most of the people probably reacted against what he was saying. But it was truth. And listen, it's the Holy Spirit who takes that kernel of truth and puts it in that crack in the soil of the human heart and then allows it to be watered by others and cultivated that grows into faith. This is square one. And for us, there will be many that have the world view that there is no God or that it doesn't matter which God you worship just so you worship one of them. Paul is beginning by saying, no, that's not true. It's not true that it doesn't matter what God you worship, just so you worship somebody. What matters is the truth, and the truth is there is one God. Then he goes on to say this. He is the living God. They're to turn from these false gods to the living God, and he is the creator. He made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. So he had to establish the God of the Bible. And they had to understand this as they were listening to what he would share. But then in verse 16, he goes on to say this. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he was not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. You know what he's sharing there? This God has been in your midst. Even though you didn't recognize him, he has extended to you mercy and kindness. And he did that even when you didn't respond to him. Listen, that has to be part of our message about God too. That God is a merciful God. That God is a kind God. There are many people who have a misconception of God that he's some kind of divine ogre that's just waiting to kill them and torture them. What Paul does is he shares with the people, look, he's provided food for your, he's, he's provided rain for your crops. He's done all of these things for you, even when you didn't recognize him. He's done this for you. He wanted them to understand the importance, again, of turning from these idols to God. And then, with this, we'll close. Verse 18 even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. 
Even though Paul established who God is, the people were so into their worldview that they didn't immediately respond. And this is something I want to encourage you with. Sometimes you plant that seed for the gospel in hard, crusty soil, and you ask yourself, did I really accomplish anything? Is this worth even the try? I don't think I got anywhere with this person. I'm just not very good at sharing the gospel. So I'll let those who are gifted in sharing the gospel carry the water. And I'll just wait until God brings that soul across my path that says, how do I become a Christian? We don't see what happens to people. But what we're going to see next time we get together is that seed, that kernel that was planted brought results. Sometimes we'll see those results immediately. Sometimes we'll see those results a long way off. But God's word never returns void. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So as you share the gospel, understand you have been faithful to what God called you to do. The outcome depends on God. This is what Paul did. And that's why God blessed his work. This morning we've seen that Paul encountered people with a radically different worldview. Every day of your life, you're going to encounter these people too. They're going to be in your workplace, in your school. They're going to be in your neighborhood, probably even in your family. Do you have a strategy in place for reaching them? Let me encourage you, pray about a strategy. Pray about a way that God can take you and use you to reach these people because it's vital that they're reached with the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the reminder that it is to us all that you are God, that you need to be worshipped as God, that people need to turn from their misconceptions of who you are to the God of revelation who has demonstrated his truth to all. And so we take this, Lord, we place it before you. And God, for our offering, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to give of the resources that you've given us. So Lord, in just a moment when our offering is taken, may we offer it to you in praise and worship and adoration. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.